The first lesson, also the text for the sermon, is Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. Mountains then would quake because of your presence as fire ignites stubble and as fire makes water boil. Make your name known to your adversaries. Then nations would quake in your presence. You did amazing things that we did not expect. You came down. Mountains quaked because of your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard. No ear has understood. No eye has seen any God except you who goes into action for the one who waits for him. You meet anyone who joyfully practices righteousness, who remembers you by walking in your ways. But you are angry because we sinned. We have remained in our sins for a long time. Can we still be saved? All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a filthy cloth. All of us have withered like a leaf, and our guilt carries us away like the wind. There is no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. So you hid your face from us. You made us melt by the power of our guilt. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry, Lord, without limit. Do not remember our guilt forever. Please look closely. All of us are your people. The word of the Lord. We read responsively Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Who may go up to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul is not set on what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God who saves him. Such are the people of Jacob who look for the Lord, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift yourselves up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is he? King of glory. The Lord of armies, he is the King of glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Today we enter the new season of Advent, and we also enter a brand new church year. And it's always good for Christians whenever we are entering something new, a season, church year, calendar year, home, job, whatever new position in life, to remember that God is still the same. He does not change. God is perfectly faithful. And so God is with us here today, according to his promise, to feed our faith with his gospel that will come to us through his word and through Jesus' supper. Every day, every hour, every fleeting moment of our life that God comes to us with his eternal gospel. He is feeding and strengthening our faith. This season of Advent is the time for Christians to prepare our hearts to greet our Savior, to look back and greet Him, His holy incarnation on Christmas, and also to look ahead to when we will greet Jesus when He returns triumphantly into this world. And so this morning, the gospel you heard was Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 
Did that seem like a little bit of a strange choice to you? Why does the Christian church decide to start the season of Advent, to start the whole church year with the story of Palm Sunday? Why, why that story out of all the stories in the Gospels? Well, I think it's because it is a story that sort of forces you to look in both directions. You look back at the purpose of Jesus coming the first time, riding into Jerusalem to save you from your sins. And it also makes you think of the time when Jesus will enter this world again on the last day, this time without humility, but with all of his glory on full display. And as New Testament Christians, this is how we have to live. We live in a time of tension between Christ's comings when we have to live by faith and not by sight. But even though we don't see Jesus in that obvious way, even though we don't see him with our physical eyes, God is faithful. And he continues to feed and strengthen our faith with his gospel and his word and in his sacraments so that we New Testament Christians, we who live by faith and not by sight, we look back in faith. And we see Jesus' mission there, riding into Jerusalem, right into the jaws of evil to save us from our sins, to replace our unrighteousness with his holiness. And God also feeds our faith to look ahead to the last day when Jesus is going to save us from every enemy and from all the troubles of this world. We live by faith, not by sight, and God gives us the faith to live that way. You know, the believers of the Old Testament... The faithful people of God who lived before Christ's first coming, they also lived by faith and not by sight. And there is a sense that you could say that the believers in the Old Testament lived with even more faith and less sight than we New Testament Christians do. And the writer of the Hebrews explains why. He says in the, in the former days, back in the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophets. And the people who lived back then, their faith survived. God fed it on the words of the prophets alone. But then the writer says, in these last days, God has also spoken to us by his son. You see, we New Testament Christians, we have the privilege of looking back at Jesus' first coming, seeing exactly what he did to take our sins away, seeing the, the words of the very son of God on the pages of scripture. The, the Old Testament believers, they didn't have that advantage. They were looking ahead to both of the Messiah's coming. And yet, the words that the Old Testament prophets spoke are still for us today in the New Testament. The words of the prophets are for God's church of every age, for all believers, even us who come after Jesus' first arrival. And the reason that the words of the prophets are still for God's people today is because the words of the prophets are full of Jesus Christ. The prophet's words are as pregnant with Christ as his virgin mother Mary was. And that includes the words you heard from Isaiah chapter 64 a few moments ago. Isaiah 64 is a prayer that the Holy Spirit gave to the prophet Isaiah for the whole nation of Israel, for all of God's faithful people to join in together. And the first part of this prayer in Isaiah 64 is a prayer for deliverance. Isaiah and the Israelites are crying out to the Lord to save them from their enemies. And the specific enemy they had in mind was the Babylonians who were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, wiping it out, leveling it to the ground. And then the few survivors, many of them were being led away back into exile in Babylon. 
It is a prayer for deliverance from God's enemies. And yet, it is also a prayer that God's people of all time can join in. Whenever we find ourselves surrounded by trouble or by God's enemies and our heart cries out for deliverance, we join ourselves to this prayer of Isaiah and Israel. We also join ourselves to this prayer because it is a prayer that is not without hope. I mean, what is prayer, really, other than an expression of hope? Hope that someone is listening, that someone is there and cares about what you are saying and is inclined to act to help you with your needs. So we New Testament Christians today, we join our hearts and our souls in this Advent prayer of Isaiah and of Israel. We join with them in the prayer that begins, Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. This is Isaiah asking the Lord to rip the sky wide open and come down into his world and show himself. There is only a certain kind of person who would ever say a prayer like that. Obviously, <clears throat> not an atheist, not, one, not someone who believes there is no God at all, Another kind of person who would never say a prayer like that. Someone who believes in some kind of generic higher power that's just sort of out there somewhere. Another kind of person who would never say a prayer like that. Someone who does believe in a personal God, a creator God, but believes that God is now sort of done with his creation. He's not really interested anymore. He made us. He started the earth spinning like a top, and now he's kind of standing off at a distance and not really interested. Oh no, the only kind of person who would say a prayer like this is someone who not only believes in a personal creator God, but also believes that God is not detached at a distance, but he is still interested intimately in the creation that he made. That's what Israel believed about the Lord. That's what you and I, New Testament Christians, believe about the Lord too. Now, there are times when we are surrounded by trouble where it might feel to us like the Lord has left us. He doesn't care. He's forgotten us. But that's just our sinful hearts talking. We feel that way because God's not giving us the exact answer that we're looking for at the moment, or he's not giving, a, giving it to us according to the calendar that we have written in our own hearts. But God is always faithful. He is always with his people. And we believe that the way Isaiah and Israel did, and that is why we join in their prayer. Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. And again, it is specifically a prayer for God to rescue his people from their enemies, to come down and save them from the trouble that surrounds them. So the first three verses strike a very similar tone. Mountains then would quake because of your presence, and then make your name known to your adversaries, and finally, then nations would quake in your presence. It is a frightening thing to ask an almighty creator God to come down and show himself with judgment against his enemies in this world. Isaiah says here, even the mountains are going to quake. Now, mountains are inanimate objects. They have no emotion. They are incapable of, of feeling anything. If even they are going to quake and melt when the Lord comes down with judgment, what is it going to be like for sinners? The writer of the Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. Nevertheless, we do pray these words 
because Scripture gives them to us to pray. And we pray them knowing full well the consequences. And you do join in this Advent prayer of Isaiah and Israel, whether you realize it or not. You join in this prayer at least once a week, hopefully more often than that. Every time you say the Lord's Prayer and you say, you come to the petition that says, your will be done. Now it is not God's will from the start for anyone to be destroyed. God is love and he wants all people to be saved. He wants everyone to repent and be saved. But it is God's will at the end that anyone who refuses to do that, anyone who disbelieves and opposes him in the end, will be destroyed. And what a picture Isaiah paints of what that is going to be like. A lot of fire. Have you ever been in the middle of a fire before? When I was in fifth or sixth grade, a local firefighter came into my school to teach the children basic fire safety. And when he finished, he opened it up for questions. And one of my classmates raised his hand and said, Oh, what's it like to be in the middle of a fire? Is it cool? To which the firefighter replied, no, it isn't, so don't start any. Isaiah here is picturing the Lord starting a fire on the last day hot enough to vaporize water, to turn water into a mist. And of course, water is the main ingredient for human life and for all life. It's destruction for everything and everybody in this world who opposes the Lord. And that includes our sin. Our sin inside of us, that is our enemy, it is the Lord's enemy too, and when he comes back on the last day, he will vanquish it. He will take away all of our sin and all of the ill effects that we feel of it in this world. It also includes everybody and everything in this world that gives grief to Jesus' church and to his people, anything that oppresses him and persecutes them. It also includes the temptations the temptations that give us difficulty from our own sinful heart and from the world around us, those will be gone. Those will be gone forever too. And sometimes we may wish in our hearts that the Lord would just do this instantly, that he would just come and vaporize right now everything that opposes him and everything that opposes his church. And you know, there are times in history where God has done that, where he has just dealt with his enemies right here and right now. Think of Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. But for now, the Lord is being patient with this world and waiting for repentance. And as his people, we live in this time of tension between those two comings. And as we do, we have a very narrow balance beam to walk here. You know, we have to walk with great care. And first of all, like our God, we don't want anyone to be destroyed. We are called to pray. For, our, for unbelievers and for our enemies, that God would reach them with his word and turn their hearts to their Savior. At the same time, we also bow to God's divine will that in the end, anyone who refuses to do that will be destroyed. Now, you know the old proverb, be careful what you wish for. That goes for prayer too. Be careful what you pray for. Before you join in this prayer for God to rip open the heavens and come with judgment against his enemies, be very careful what you pray for and how you pray for it. It is best not to pray for God to come with judgment against sinners in general. 
Because that would include judgment against you and me too. We are just as sinful as anybody else. In fact, it's a sad thing and it shouldn't be this way. But sometimes Christians are guilty of sinning, visibly at least, outwardly, even worse than unbelievers. That was true in Israel too, at Isaiah's time. And that's why this Advent prayer that we are joining our hearts to today suddenly turns inward toward the church, toward the people of God, to the enemy within, so to speak. This Advent prayer that we join our hearts to now turns into a confession of sins and a plea for God's forgiveness. So we continue, you meet anyone who joyfully practices righteousness, who remembers you by walking in your ways, but you were angry because we sinned. We have remained in our sin for a long time. Can we still be saved? All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a filthy cloth. All of us have withered like a leaf and our guilt carries us away like the wind. See, the gravity of Israel's own sin was powerful enough to wipe away any potential little self-righteous smirk that anyone might have been thinking about cracking. Even those who love the Lord, even those who walk in the ways of righteousness are guilty and stubborn. Even our best works are made gross by our sin. And our spiritual strength is withered up by our guilt. See, the Bible teaches that we are, at the same time, perfectly holy and righteous in the eyes of God, and yet we are still filthy, stinking sinners. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. And yet, sinners who believe, sinners who look to God in faith, are looking to the God who will not only one day rip open the heavens with judgment, but already rip them open once with salvation. It was an amazing thing, an awesome thing on Christmas night when the Lord literally ripped open the heavens and his glory shone through the angel chorus to the shepherds in the field. And yet, when the Lord ripped open the heavens with salvation on Christmas night, those shepherds did not melt the way that God's enemies one day will. Instead, the angels told them, Fear not. Do not be afraid. Because on that night, God had ripped open the heavens and sent down a Savior for them and for the whole world. They were told not to be afraid, but to rejoice because the Messiah, the Christ, had come down with salvation for them and for all people. Now, who could have expected that? Who could have predicted that in the middle of the night, God was going to rip open the heavens and send down salvation in the form of his son, wrapped in the humility of a little baby boy? Whoever could have seen that coming? Isaiah did. Earlier in this book, Isaiah vividly predicted the virgin birth God himself coming in human flesh to be Emmanuel, God with us, and to save us from our sins. Isaiah predicted it, and the Lord delivered it on Christmas night when he ripped open the heavens and sent down his son to save us. And that is why Isaiah, sinner though he is, and you and I, sinners though we are, join in this prayer. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are clay and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry, Lord, without limit. Do not remember our guilt forever. Please look closely. 
all of us are your people. Sinners though we are, God now sees none of it, even upon his closest divine inspection. He forgets our guilt and remembers his mercy. He is our Father, and we are his people. In this prayer of forgiveness, of absolution, we also join with Isaiah and Israel in this Advent prayer of God's forgiveness. So in the liturgy of the Western Church, there is a little song, a canticle, technically it's called, that echoes the song of the angels on Christmas night. That canticle is called Gloria, or Gloria in a Chelsea's. And it is the custom still in many churches to omit that song during Advent. It is obviously not the custom in this particular church because you just sang it about 20 minutes ago. But a lot of churches omit that little song during Advent and then they bring it back, but not until Christmas morning. And why would they do that? Because in Advent, New Testament Christians spiritually go back and we join ourselves in the soul to those believers who lived before Christ's first coming. Together with them, we look ahead to Jesus' arrival on Christmas Day, to the promises made and fulfilled. Now, admittedly, this makes Advent a spiritually confusing time. Because <laughs> if you are going to celebrate Advent in all of its depth, you stand here as a New Testament Christian between Christ's two comings. You look back to when he came to save you from your sins. You look ahead to when he's going to save you from all the trouble in this world. Then, at the same time, in your soul, you rewind before his first coming. Join yourself with Israel and look ahead to that. You say, boy, this is a lot of standing and moving and looking. My, my soul is going to get dizzy. But you see, for a believer, this is a very joyful spiritual swivel. Because wherever you stand in the season of Advent, no matter what direction you look in, you see God's salvation everywhere. Because God answers the Advent prayer of his people. Remember the Israelites, they were praying specifically for deliverance from the Babylonians. And God finally answered that prayer. He sent another empire along to knock off the Babylonians. And a, a little group of Jewish exiles were sent back to the promised land where they were able to rebuild their temple and wait in faith for the Messiah. But the ultimate answer to this Advent prayer came a few hundred years after that, when Jesus bowed, and died his bowed his head and died on the cross of Calvary. Because when that happened, God ripped open the heavens again, and the mountains shook. The Gospel of Matthew tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. See, the mission of the first coming at that moment was over. The barrier of sin that separated God and human beings was gone. We look back in joy to Jesus' first coming and in the season of Advent, we look ahead when he will save us from all trouble and gather all his faithful to himself. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.